ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد Carrying on then with the fiqh lessons, we're in the chapter regarding the nullifiers of wudu, the different types of things that break the wudu of a person. And so today, the first point we're going to start with is when someone dies, and you have to wash the body, the person who washes the body of the deceased, does that person's wudu break? That's going to be the first topic today. If you wash the body of a deceased individual to prepare it for the janazah, etc., does your wudu break by doing that? There is a hadith of Abu Hurairah radiyallahu anhu qal qala rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam man ghassala mayyitan falyaghtasil wa man hamalahu falyatawadda akhrajahu ahmad wa nasai wa tirmidhi wa hasanah وقال أحمد لا يصح في هذا الباب شيء In this hadith of Abu Hurairah رضي الله عنه He said that the messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم said Whoever washes a deceased person, then he must make ghusl. Whomsoever washes a deceased person, he has to go make ghusl. And whomsoever carries the deceased person, he has to make wudu. The one who washes the deceased person, ghusl upon him. The one who carries the deceased person, only wudu upon him. That's what this hadith indicates. As-Shaykh al-Fawzan, hafizahullah ta'ala mentions here, Tarsilu al-Mayyit ma'ruf, Washing the body of the deceased, that is something known. وَهُوَ فَرْضُ كِفَايَةٍ عَلَى مَنْ عَلِمَ بِهِ مِنَ الْمُسْلِمِينَ Washing the deceased Muslim, washing the body of the deceased Muslim in preparation for the janazah, that is a fard kifayah. What is a fard kifaya? What is the 
definition of the fard kifaya. Anyone? It's obligatory on the community. It's obligatory upon the community, but what does that mean? But not every individual, but somebody in the community needs to be able to do it. But it's not wajib for every single person. Okay. So, a fard kifaya, they say, if some from amongst the community fulfill that responsibility, then the sin drops from them all. Meaning if nobody did it, they would all be sinners. If somebody now in the community here died, and none of us washed their body, none of us went and did the janaza, nothing, we'd all be sinners. Somebody has to do it. Someone has to take that responsibility, wash the body, prepare the janazah. It's a fard kifaya, meaning if some people in the community take care of it, then it covers everybody else. And there is no sin upon anybody else then. The other type of fard is known as fard ayn. And that is the type where Every individual specifically has to carry it out. Prayer, for example, the five daily prayers, Fardain, every person has to pray them. You cannot say if some people pray, the rest are covered. Completely different, Fard Kifaya and Fardain. So here the Shaykh says, washing the body of a deceased Muslim, it's a Fard Kifaya. Someone or some people in the community at least have to take care of it and then it covers everybody else. It doesn't require everybody to go and do it. وَكُلُّ مَيِّتْ مِنَ الْمُسْلِمِينَ يَجِبُ أَنْ يُغْسَلْ And every Muslim that dies must be washed except what are the exceptions to it? The shaheed, the one who dies as a martyr in the path of Allah, then their body is not washed. And also, what kind of an example would also be an exception? <coughs> no, talking about the Muslims. Dies in a fire? So what? You don't wash them? Ah, you fire, you mean like he's in the example of somebody who's a shaheed then. But there's other more obvious examples though. Physical examples. I thought you were going to make a different point about the fire. Because if somebody's burnt in a fire, there's no body left to wash. So they say in fiqh, if somebody dies in a way whereby there is no body left to wash, then obviously there is no washing involved. Or if somebody dies in a way where it's not possible to wash the body as a body. For example, maybe somebody is crushed and their limbs and everything is torn apart and their body is not even intact. It's all torn apart and some limbs and some limbs. So in that case, what do you do? How are you going to do the ghusl if somebody died in that way? In that case, the scholars, they say, you can do 
tamam upon that person. If their body is all cut up in that way, for example, it's not possible to do a washing upon the various limbs, etc., then a tayammum can be done. And if there was any other prevention, sometimes there can be something preventing you from being able to wash the body of a person, whatever that reason may be, but if there was something preventing you, then so be it. But otherwise, every Muslim is washed. So here the narration says, whomsoever washes the body of a Muslim, the ghusl upon the deceased Muslim, then that person, he must make not just wudu, but full ghusl, the narration says. Full ghusl. And obviously within the full ghusl is a wudu. If the person has to make a full ghusl, then within that there is involved a wudu. So the point would be that if a person washes the body of a deceased Muslim, their wudu has clearly broken. It's clearly gone. They don't have to, not not only do they have to make wudu, they have to actually make a full ghusl. If you have to make a full ghusl, you must be upon a level of lack of impurity that is even more than just the lack of impurity when wudu is gone. It's above that level. So this would indicate that you are no longer upon wudu if you wash the body of a deceased individual such that the command is you have to go make a full ghusl. That's what the narration says and it is with lamul amr. Then that person must go make ghusl. That's what it says. And then it says in the hadith as well, The person that carries the janazah, for example, the body to the graveyard, the ones who carry the body, they have to make wudu. فَظَاهِرُ الْحَدِيثِ أَنَّ مَنْ غَصَلَ الْمَيِّتَ يَجِبُ عَلِيهِ الْإِغْتِسَالِ وَمَنْ حَمَلَهُ يَجِبُ عَلِيهِ الْوُضُوءِ لَكِنْ الْإِمَامُ أَحْمَدِ يَقُولُ But الْإِمَامُ أَحْمَدِ says لَا يَصِحُّ فِي هَذَا الْبَابِ شَيْءٍ الْإِمَامُ أَحْمَدِ He mentioned that there is no authentic hadith proving that. Meaning this narration right here, he does not consider it to be an authentic hadith from the Prophet Al-Imam Ahmed from the Muhaddithun, from those who were expert in the sciences of hadith and the chains of narration, he believes that this narration is not a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. He believes that this narration is actually mawquf, meaning that it was the statement of Abu Huraira himself. That Abu Huraira said, do this. Whoever washes the body, make the ghusl. Whoever carries the body, make the wudu. Al-Imam Ahmed says this is mawquf. It's the statement of Abu Huraira. It wasn't the statement of the Prophet ﷺ as a ruling. 
So that's why Al-Imam Ahmed says there is nothing authentic about doing this. He says this hadith cannot be considered as an authentic evidence to say that you have to make the ghusl if you wash the body and that you have to make wudu if you carry the body because as far as he's concerned the narration is not authentic up to the Prophet ﷺ. It is only the statement of Abu Huraira himself. Of course, of course, there are some scholars who have examined this narration and they do believe it is authentic up to the Prophet ﷺ, like Al-Imam Al-Tirmidhi. Al-Imam Al-Tirmidhi, he considers it to be authentic to the Prophet ﷺ. And of course, why and how all returns back to the sciences of hadith and the ilm al-rijal and the narrators and the chains of narration and various affairs. But the point being, in a nutshell, scholars differed over the authenticity of this narration and others and therefore they differed over the ruling regarding the one who washes the body of a deceased Muslim they differed over whether it is obligatory upon that person to make the ghusl afterwards or not and uh, Sheikh Al-Fawzan is going to highlight that now here further he says this hadith as it stands considering that it is authentic, then it indicates very clearly without any doubt that if you wash the body of a deceased Muslim, then you must, as an obligation, go and make the full ghusl. However, he says, the opinion of many of the scholars is that it is not an obligation, but that it is a mustahab action. It is mustahab for a person who washes the body that they themselves go do ghusl afterwards. It is mustahab for them to do that. But now the issue is, principles in understanding the narrations, the first narration we just looked at, that's a command. Then they must go make the ghusl. A command by default indicates something that is an obligation. In Usul al-Fiqh, they mention this. A hadith which has the wording of a command, then the default is that equals obligation. When the messenger commands you to do something, orders you to do something, then it's an obligation. Unless you can find some evidence that would therefore downgrade it from an obligation to mustahab. So do we have any other evidence that would suggest it's not an obligation and therefore we can downgrade it and say from obligation it is only mustahab. There is, there is another narration mentioned in Al-Bayhaqi or by Al-Bayhaqi from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that the scholars use لَيْسَ عَلَيْكُمْ فِي مَيِّتِكُمْ غُسْلٌ إِذَا غَسَلْتُمُوهُ In this narration it says there is no ghusl upon you 
if you wash the body of the deceased. Straightforward, clear wording. There is no ghusl upon you if you wash the body of the deceased. So now this one is telling us there is no ghusl upon you. The other one is telling us he must make ghusl. So now what do we do here? Some scholars, they said, that this could be considered as abrogation. Some scholars said this could be considered as abrogation, that initially the ruling was if you wash the dead body, you yourself must go make ghusl. But then afterwards, maybe this narration that Al-Bayhaqi mentioned came, which said, no, there is no ghusl upon you now if you wash the deceased. So some scholars took the opinion there is no ghusl at all involved in that because it is abrogated by this narration collected by Al-Bayhaqi or reported by Al-Bayhaqi, narrated by him. Others, they said, because remember, abrogation is the last thing. You go to abrogation as a last resort because when you go into abrogation, it means you have to nullify a hadith from the sunnah. That's abrogation. You're abrogating a narration. You're wiping it out. You're making it null and void. And we don't want to be making any narration of the sunnah null and void. If there is a way to combine between them and maintain them both, then that is the priority, not to wipe one of them out. So other scholars, they said, no, we don't go straight to abrogation. Rather, what we can say is that this narration can be used as the supporting evidence to highlight that the other narration does not intend an obligation. Even though it says you must make the ghusl, because this one here now says, no, there's no ghusl upon you. By putting them together, we can therefore understand that maybe the ruling of the obligation is actually only mustahab. Because the messenger said in the other one, it's not upon you. So they came to the conclusion by joining them together that the command which normally indicates obligation, in this case only indicates mustahab, istihbab. So their conclusion, many of the scholars is, that it is only mustahab for you to do the ghusl if you wash the body of a deceased individual. And that's like some of the other types of ghusl, some of the other types of ghusl that are mentioned in the religion, like the ghusl of Fridays and the ghusl for going to Arafah in Hajj, and the ghusl for entering Makkah. There's a sunnah to do ghusl before entering Makkah. And the ghusl before you enter into the state of Ihram. There are multiple different types of ghusl that are not wajib, obligatory. But they are sunnah. Some of them sunnah mu'akkada. Like a strongly emphasized sunnah. Like the ghusl of Fridays. So this one would come into those types of categories that it is a sunnah, it is mustahab, 
that if you wash the body of the deceased, you yourself should then make the ghusl. So then this indicates, of course, upon the opinion that it's obligatory that your wudu is broken, but upon the opinion that it's only mustahab, then it would not be considered from the nullifiers of wudu. If it is only mustahab for you to have to go make the ghusl, meaning you don't have to do it, then that indicates your wudu hasn't broken, your wudu has not become null and void, it is only mustahab for you to do so. Some of the scholars, they say though, even if the ghusl is not wajib, even if it's not, they say wudu as a minimum still is. Some scholars have that opinion. That wudu as a minimum, if you wash the body of a deceased individual, is still a minimum. And this is the opinion of the Hanabila. The Hanabila, the Hanbalis, they say even if, even if the ghusl is not an obligation, minimum wudu is, if you wash the body of a deceased individual. And they mention various reasonings for that. Obviously, they take this narration or some of the narrations uh, regarding the wudu, but they also give some explanations. And one of those explanations is that when you wash the body of a deceased individual, there is a very possible likelihood that you may end up making contact with their private area. And that would therefore require you to make wudu, they say. Typically washing the body of a deceased individual, when you do it, of course, you cover the private area with some cloth or some other affair, but still washing the body of a deceased individual, turning the body around, etc. There is a likelihood, they said, you may end up contacting some area of the private area of that deceased individual. And so this would be a cause for that person to make the wudu, uh, after washing the body of the deceased individual. So, the ruling here de- depends and differs, but the majority of the scholars, they say, overall, the ruling on this is istihbab only. That it is mustahab to make the wudu afterwards or to make the full ghusl afterwards, and that it is not an obligation Therefore, it would appear to be the case, according to the majority of the scholars, that your wudu doesn't break if you wash the body of a deceased individual. And it is only mustahab for you to do the ghusl or the wudu. But with the hanabila, like we said, for them it is obligatory to make the wudu at least. And with some of the scholars, it is obligatory to make the full ghusl even. The second part of the narration said, and whoever carries the body, carries it, then upon them is to make wudu. However, as Shaykh Al-Fawzan mentions that there are no scholars virtually who actually take the opinion that you have to make wudu if you carry the body of the deceased. That this is an opinion that basically doesn't exist. There are no scholars practically who hold the opinion 
that if you carry the deceased to the, to the burial, for example, you're carrying the body to where it's going to be buried, there's barely any scholars who actually say it is an obligation for you to have to make wudu if you do that. Many of them, they say the meaning here is only a linguistic meaning. Linguistically, wudu references washing, to do the washing. So they say the ruling is if you're one of the people carrying the body, of course, this isn't talking about the coffins and things they use these days. The body as it would be carried normally on the, on the, like the, the, the wooden, wooden platform. Huh? The, the wooden pla- platform type of thing, they just put the body and then carry it. So if you're carrying the body like that, the body is just there, exposed. There's no coffin or nothing. So they say with that, you're going to be carrying the body. You may be in contact with the body as you're carrying it. So afterwards, it is suitable that you go and wash. Wash your hands, wash yourself afterwards from having been in physical contact with that body when carrying it to bury it. So that's what the majority of them say on that. There is, uh, There are hardly any if any, scholars who say that there is an obligation to do wudu if you carry the body. Then, any questions on that before we go to the next hadith? The scholars that say that uh, the hadith is sahih, do they not hold it that it's wajib basically to do wudu after carrying the body? No, even them, even they say the meaning of the wudu part is the lughawi meaning. That it's the linguistic meaning. Even they don't say it is an obligation to make wudu. They say that part is a linguistic meaning only that's intended. That you go wash yourself afterwards, wash your hands, wash your arms after you've been carrying the body. Not that you must make a full wudu. Even they do not hold you have to make a full wudu. Anybody else? Saying that there's nothing upon you. So one narration says you must make the ghusl if you wash the body. The other one says there is no ghusl upon you if you wash the body. So we're not choosing that one either. We're not saying there's no ghusl upon you. What we're saying is when you have a narration that has an order in it, a command. Like the first one does. You must make ghusl if you wash the body. A command, usually by default, if the messenger commands you with something, it equals an obligation. It's an obligation you have to do it if the messenger commands you or orders you. Unless you can find some other evidence that could be used as a type of supporting evidence to indicate that on this occasion the Command or the order doesn't mean an obligation, it's a bit less. So they use this one. They say, here, look, you've got another hadith saying there is no ghusl upon you. So it can't possibly be obligatory. And then at the same time, another hadith says, you don't have to do it. How are you going to combine between them? The combination could be that we say, it is mustahab that you should do it. Because one narration is saying, do it. But the other one is saying, you don't have to do it. 
So if you take a type of middle ground between them, you could say it's mustahab you should do it, but that it's not an obligation that you do it. That then, in a way, combines both narrations. It puts them together. From the command, you can go down a notch to make it mustahab. Why? Because there's another narration indicating that. By combining them, you get to that conclusion. Anybody else? Uh, uh. No, it's okay. The statements of the companions, we accept those as well. The statements of the companions. But with the statements of the companions, if there is no other evidence directly from the Prophet ﷺ upon a ruling, and it's a, it's a separate, independent kind of statement, then that isn't necessarily taken straight away. So here there is no hadith at all. That is proven from the messenger saying you have to do ghusl if you wash the dead body. So here then the scholar said, well, Abu Huraira said that. But okay, in that case, that's maybe uh, an ijtihad that he made perhaps. That could be some type of fatwa that he gave perhaps. But because there's no, no established narration from the messenger saying that at all anywhere. Then in that case, it is not directly taken like that. It's like the wudu one. Uh, we're going to get to it, or oh, we did it before, the wudu about the فَلْيُطِلْ uh, غُرَّتَهُ When the hadith said about the body parts are going to be shining on the day of judgment, where you make wudu. So Abu Huraira said, فَمَنْ إِسْتَضَاعَ مِنْكُمْ أَنْ يُطِيلَ غُرَّتَهُ فَلْيَفْعَلْ That narration that we did, whomsoever from amongst you is able to increase the area that is going to be shining, then do so. So it's mentioned when he made wudu, he would go a bit higher up. And when he made wudu on the ankles, he'd go a bit higher up the ankles to extend the area that is going to be shining on that day. But that, of course, is an ijtihad of Abu Huraira. Because that is not evidenced that the messenger ever did that, that he extended the washing beyond the parts. So there the scholar said, this is an ijtihad of Abu Huraira, fatwa of Abu Huraira, but that cannot be taken as a statement of the messenger or a practice of the messenger. So sometimes they look into those affairs to determine whether something is in evidence along with the rest of the religion, or if something is an ijtihad or a, a position or a fatwa of a particular companion individually. There are lots of things that come into that topic. It's a very vast topic about the uh, statements of the companions and when you can take them and when you cannot. Sometimes you could have the statement of one companion and it's taken as part of the religion, sunnah that you do X, Y, and Z. But they say it's only one companion who mentioned it. Why don't you say it is personal fatwa now? You could say, as they mention in Usul al-Fiqh, the ijma' sukuti, the, the silent consensus. The silent consensus. It's like if I say, I'm going to open this now and have a drink. Does anyone have a problem with that? If nobody speaks up and says nothing, nobody says anything. So now I know I can determine that I have a consensus that all of you are happy for me to have a drink of this. 
because nobody said anything. Nobody spoke. They call it a silent consensus. Whereas the verbal consensus is if I say, are you all happy with that? And then everybody has to say, yes, go ahead. So now I have a verbal consensus. But if I say, does anybody have an issue with that? Nobody says anything. Then that indicates that nobody has an issue. So they call it a silent consensus. And that exists sometimes amongst the companions where a particular companion may have given a fatwa, may have done something in the presence of the other companions and no other companion spoke up against him. No other companion differed with him. No other companion had anything to say about that, indicating all of the other companions were happy with that. Because if they were not and they had some other evidence, they would certainly speak and clarify and ask about that and why he's saying that and why he's doing that. If none of them do it, then it indicates they had no issue with it. But that's another whole topic by itself. Let's uh, do the next narration as well. We'll do more at the end if there's time. The next narration here, the, oh, so that one was now the تغسيل uh, mayyit, the washing of the deceased. Then we have عن عبد الله ابن أبي بكر رحمه الله أن في الكتاب الذي كتبه رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم لعمر بن حزم أن لا يمس القرآن إلا طاهر That no one can touch the Quran the Mus'haf, the physical copy of the Quran no one can touch that unless you are upon purity. So this is now that topic and that issue of are you allowed to touch the mushaf if you're not upon wudu? Is it permissible to touch the mushaf, the Quran, to pick it up if you haven't got wudu? That's the topic here. And with regards to this topic, the Qur'an here, it is obviously in reference to the physical written Qur'an, the Mus'haf, touching that. And the narration says that you cannot touch it unless you are upon purity. Unless you are upon purity, meaning that you're upon purification, you're upon wudu, then you can pick it up. Otherwise, you do not touch it. That's what the narration says. يَعْنِ لَا يَمَسَ الْمُصْحَفِ مُبَاشَرَةً So a person does not touch the mushaf directly. Directly touching it. A person does not touch it directly. And this is just one of the things Islamically that a person cannot do unless they are upon purification. There are certain things Islamically you can only do if you are upon purification, the obvious being the prayer. And this is another example, touching the mushaf. And also, for example, when you're doing umrah, the tawaf, to be upon wudu, when doing the tawaf, so there are various things where you have to be upon wudu to be able to do it. According to some of the scholars, even entering the mosque, 
for the one who is upon certain types of impurity, like the woman on the period, etc. So now then, with this particular issue of touching the Mus'haf directly, and it's about touching it directly. If, for example, somebody came and put a Mus'haf in front of you on those the wooden things, somebody puts a Mus'haf there, and you're using a ruler or something. You're reading it, and then you use a ruler to turn the page over. You're not physically touching it. Then that doesn't come into this discussion. That's allowed. Because they say the whole issue here is about contact with the physical copy of the Qur'an. But if somebody put the copy down in front of you, using a ruler, for example, to flip the pages, then that isn't coming into this discussion. So many of them, they say that this ruling is all about the physical contact with the Mus'haf, the Mas Al-Mubashir. Then what is mentioned as an evidence sometimes by some of the scholars, إِنَّهُ لَقُرْآنٌ كَرِيمٌ فِي كِتَابٍ مَكْنُونٌ لَا يَمَسُّهُ إِلَّا الْمُطَهَّرُونَ that none can touch it except those upon purity. Talking about the Qur'an in these ayat, none can touch it or touches it except those who are upon purity. This is used sometimes by some of the scholars as an evidence that you cannot touch the Qur'an unless you're upon purity. But how? Can this be used as an evidence when the majority of the scholars and the mufassirun they say that this ayah is actually in reference to what? Al-Lawhul Mahfuz. That these ayat here in Surah Al-Waqi'ah they are talking about Al-Lawhul Mahfuz, the preserved tablet that none touches it except those upon purity, meaning the angels. So if that's what the tafsir of this ayah is, what's that got to do with us here? If the tafsir of the ayah is about the preserved tablet where the Qur'an is in, the Qur'an is written upon the preserved tablet, and that none except the pure touch it, meaning the angels, that's the tafsir of these ayat, then what connection does that have to us with these physical copies, the mushaf? How could that be an evidence? The words of Allah. So along those lines, they say if in the heavens it is mentioned only the pure angels they can touch it, then likewise, it's the same Qur'an here. And so likewise, only the pure should touch it. Those upon purity, those upon wudu, just like in the heavens, Allah has told us only the pure touch it. So they say the same ruling would apply to us. Why would it be different? It is the Qur'an in Allah al-Mahfuz. It is the Qur'an here in the Masahif. فَلَيْسَ فِي الْآيَةِ So Ibn al-Qayyim, he highlighted that this is what is known as Dalalatul Ishara. 
that the evidence isn't a direct, clear-cut evidence. The evidence isn't talking about these masahif. The evidence is talking about the preserved tablet, and it's talking about the angels, not us humans. So the evidence isn't directly about us and our situation. However, dalalatul ishara, the evidence points to and indicates, and it can be deduced and inferred from it, that the same ruling would therefore be applicable to us. That if only the pure in the heavens are allowed to touch it, then certainly it should be only the pure from us who are allowed to touch it. So that is the evidence used by many of the scholars, or the example given by many of the scholars, that only the people upon purity and wudu are allowed to touch the mushaf, and that is the opinion uh, of the majority of the scholars, the jumhur, that it is only upon wudu that you can touch physically the mushaf. Upon wudu, that is the majority of the scholars, it is all of the four schools of thought, of a thought, the Hanafis, the Malikis, the Shafi'is, the Hanbalis, all of the four schools of thought, they say that you must be upon wudu before touching the mushaf, and it is about touching it directly. They even say, if you are wearing gloves, and you're reading the Qur'an and turning the pages over, that wouldn't even count as touching it directly. It is literally about the direct contact. You remember even the topic about touching your private parts and if it breaks your wudu or not. It was about physically and actually making direct contact. Not if you touch the private area over your garment. Nobody says your wudu breaks then. Hear the same thing about physical, actual contact. So the discussion here is about physical direct contact with the Qur'an or with the Mus'haf 
and not any type of contact that occurs behind some type of barrier. For example, uh, if a person was wearing gloves, they say, or if the, the mushaf had a cover on it. People sometimes, they have those cloth covers they put on them. So if you touched it from that cloth cover to pick it up and put it somewhere, you wouldn't be considered touching the mushaf directly. So it is the opinion of the majority of the scholars, you cannot directly touch the mushaf if you're not upon wudu. There is an issue that arises, and the shaykh he mentions here as well, when you're teaching kids the Qur'an classes, five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven, eight, nine, all the kids who come to mosque in the evenings, the two-hour mosque in the evenings, the Qur'an classes, etc., they come and do all their Qur'an reading, memorization, and maybe half of them are not upon wudu. Kids, five-year-olds, six, seven, eight, even if they made wudu, when they came, who knows if they are on wudu now when they come to the mosque. Maybe all of them, not a single one of them could be on wudu. So now they're all sat there with the mushaf and reading and learning and practicing. So now what's the ruling? What are we going to do? Does the teacher have to say, before we start, is everybody upon wudu? You're not, go make wudu, go make wudu, go make wudu. What do you do? Everywhere Quran classes going on, kids being taught in this mosque, in other mosques. What are you going to do? Who's the Quran teachers here? What do you do? In the olden days, they get the sticks and the keys. <laughs> These days, impermissible. You cannot do anything of the nature. The Sheikh says, with that type of scenario, it is excused. It's excused. It's impossible. Even if you did what we just said, who's on wudu, who's not, go make wudu. Five minutes later, the same child may no longer be upon wudu. Who knows? You cannot keep asking every five minutes, who's on wudu, who's on wudu. Make sure if you break your wudu, you go. You can't keep doing it. Impossible. And because of that difficulty, the scholars, they say it's an exemption, it's excused, because you have no choice. You have to teach the kids Qur'an from a young age. They have to start memorizing. They have to start learning. They have to keep that connection with the Qur'an. So you can't say we're not going to teach young kids because of this wudu issue. You have to teach them. So it becomes a bit of an exception. And on top of that, the Shaykh says when they are very young kids, five, six, seven, eight, they're not mukallaf anyway. They're ghair mukallaf. The rulings of Islam are not applicable upon them as a responsibility yet. So there are different reasons for an exemption to apply there. Of course, generally you still remind them and tell them you need to be upon wudu for the Quran, etc. And if it breaks, do go make, make it again. You can do that. But it's not upon you to make sure you check everybody and every two minutes and do all of that. They can read the Quran, memorize it and you do the class. That brings us to the end of that narration, and there is one more, but um, any questions up to there so far? Well, like we said, the whole discussion is about physical direct contact. 
So in that scenario, you're saying maybe the mushaf is on a table or something at home, you're not upon wudu, and you're just doing some things and you need to move that mushaf off the table, can you just do it? It's just moving it from there to there, but you're not on wudu. Then according to the scholars, like we said, you're not supposed to touch it if you're not upon wudu, but it's about direct contact. So all you have to do is bring some cloth to pick it up with, and that isn't considered direct contact. Then use some cloth or something to pick it up with and move it without making direct contact on it. And many of the scholars say that isn't considered direct contact anymore. No, because then, then it goes beyond where you can start uh, drawing the lines. Because if you say, well, the cover is covering it, then maybe the first page is blank, and then that's covering it. You, you can't go to, uh, to such an extent. The Mus'haf, we know the Mus'haf. Somebody says to you, give me a copy of the Mus'haf, you would give them that full thing. That is the Mus'haf. You wouldn't take off the cover and say, I need to borrow that, take the rest. That is the Mus'haf. So that's what we consider to be the Mus'haf. So you give them all of that. So all of that takes the ruling, the Mus'haf. But on top of it, if there's a cover on it, those cloth covers people sew. If somebody said to you, give me the Mus'haf, and you took the cover off and gave them the Mus'haf, would they have a problem? No, you've given them the Mus'haf. But you've taken the cover off. The cover isn't a part of the Mus'haf. But this and everything else is then part of the Mus'haf. Anybody else? No, the English translation is not the same ruling. It is the, the Arabic that is considered that ruling. Anybody else? The Arabic being in there, the full Arabic being in there, then you have a full copy of the Mus'haf. That is a full Mus'haf then with the Quran in it, with all of the Arabic within it. Uh, and that's why they say, uh, really, if you give the Mus'haf to somebody, you should give them the English meanings of it. The Muhsin Khan, printed and available, the best copy available. Give that to them, Taqiyuddin al Muhsin Khan. Those are the copies, and you can get those in complete English without the Arabic in it at all. Anybody else? Does Harbu say that you can't touch it? What, do you know what proof they, they used? No, because they said the ayah. Isn't talking about us. This ayah isn't about this evidence. And the next hadith we didn't get time today is another evidence they use. Because in the next narration it mentions the hadith of Aisha where she said the Prophet ﷺ used to remember Allah in all of his circumstances. Meaning when he was upon purity and when he wasn't upon purity. And so they use that along with the evidences too. Somebody here says, what is the ruling on biting the nails? The ruling on biting your nails. I've never understood that. I've never been a nail biter. <laughs> but some people, they do it. And Allah Alam, I don't really understand why. But this is something that occurs and it is in the human nature of some people. But Allah Alam, there's no ruling upon that. There's no ruling as such on biting your nails. The rulings on the nails are mentioned in Kitab al-Tahara. In the purification of a Muslim that you're supposed to cut your nails along with uh, uh, plucking the underarms. For those who are not capable of that, then other means, shaving, etc. And the private areas, 
There are hadith that mention about the purity of a Muslim, the purification and cleanliness of a Muslim. In those narrations, it mentions about cutting the nails. But uh, the one who bites on the nails, there's no ruling upon that. But you have to remember other kinds of things in the masjid, for example. If you're biting your nails, they don't spit those little pieces out onto the carpet. Things like that. But otherwise, as a ruling Islamically, there's no issue in it. Anybody else? Alright, we'll conclude upon that for today. Also to let you know, I've been told by the masjid that the schedule has changed. The class schedule. Which means that this class is going to end up only once a month. Once every four Fridays. The the schedule apparently has changed in the masjid and the classes. So this is only going to end up once a month now. Which is going to make it difficult, especially with a book like Fiqh. But you'll have to just organize your schedules and your timetables. When that week is coming, make sure you revise all of the previous section carefully that week. Go over that previous lesson because it will have been two weeks or three weeks since that previous class. So make sure you maintain it in that way. It's the only way. You know, a class once a month, it becomes difficult, but it's the only way. You have to revise that week when that week comes around. Revise your previous one, listen to the lecture, go over the hadith, and refresh your mind completely that week leading up to the lecture again. Uh, And that's the only way you're going to be able to try and maintain it. But make a schedule like that. And in that way, inshallah ta'ala, you'll still be able to maintain what is being learned in that lesson, in that lecture. You'll be able to remember what's being done. And, uh, you know, make groups amongst yourselves. As a student of knowledge, one of the things that all of the scholars say, basically all of them, that as a talib al-ilm, you must have people, a partner or people that you revise with. So revise the knowledge amongst yourselves. Maybe in that week when it comes up to the class, then you come together in a group of you and you revise the previous section. What was the hadith? What were the rulings? Refresh it all. And then have a look at the next hadith in advance as well. The next section or what the next part is. We're using the explanation of a Shaykh Al-Fawzan on Bulugh Al-Maram as the majority of the explanation. Manhaj Salikin is the text basically and then all of the points are being explained mostly from the explanation of a Shaykh Al-Fawzan on Bulugh Al-Maram in the same sections. So make a schedule, revise together and in that way hopefully inshallah ta'ala you'll be able to maintain what is done uh, even if it is only one class every few weeks. So we'll conclude upon that for now then until the next session.